Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. We're very excited to announce that we are changing our name to Wild Heart Meditation Center. You can stay subscribed to the podcast as you currently are, or if you choose to join us again at a later date in the future, just remember to search wherever you get your podcasts for Wild Heart Meditation Center. We're excited to be introducing new facilitators to our group and expanding our presence in our local community. Enjoy. So this is a discourse that was delivered by the Buddha. It's called the Metta Sutta, and I'm going to read it. He says, This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, the born and the unborn, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding, not by holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires is not born again into this world. So we can go home now. <laughs> this is called the Metta Sutta, and this is, uh, for me personally, has been such an important part of this practice. Is you know some of the just encouragement to live with more intention in my day-to-day life. And to live with more kindness, to live with more reflection. The Buddha calls metta one of the sublime abidings, as he says in this sutta. And the word for the sublime abidings is this word Brahma Vihara, which I talked about a couple weeks ago. And the Buddha was a you know, he was a psychologist of sorts. He was not very interested in metaphysics or even what we would maybe call spirituality. He was much more interested in psychology. And Brahma Vihara, when translated, it means the dwelling place of God. And so metta, or loving kindness, this practice of, that we're going to talk about tonight, is a practice that's encouraging us to abide, to dwell in this intention. 
And so the Buddha would say, well, he's not so interested on whether God exists or doesn't exist. But he said, well, this is where God lives, <laughs> in kindness. And so early on for me in my meditation practice, I was very interested in the wisdom aspect of Buddhism. Sometimes people say that you come into you know, Buddhist practice in one of two doors, either through the heart or the head. You know, folks that are really interested in the aspects of the Buddhist teaching that talk about non-harming or compassion, forgiveness. And then the folks that are interested in more of the clarity and the wisdom that you know, the Buddha talked about, but that we also get through practicing mindfulness. And I was much more interested in the benefits of mindfulness than I was the benefits of compassion. <laughs> you know, and I came here because I was miserable. You know, I came into this practice because my mind was so miserable. I had struggled with depression for a lot throughout my childhood, but I went through a huge bout of depression, which landed me in this room. And a lot of my depression, I know everyone has a different experience with such a generic kind of term these days, <laughs> but part of my depression was this kind of relentless, cynical, critical, miserable negativity in my mind. You know, there's just this kind of attitude of, yeah, negativity. And in the beginning, if I'm honest, I started hearing about, you know, the Buddha talking about compassion, forgiveness, and that these are things you got to practice. It's a discipline. It's not a belief. And I was like, well, shit, I got to be a good Buddhist. I got to start being kind, <laughs> right? More than just being aware of my thoughts and feelings in the moment and being less reactive and so on and so forth. I got to really you know, try to be a better person. And this practice that we're going to do here in a little bit, and kind of the practice we did in the beginning of bringing kindness into contemplation, into our awareness for reflection, was probably the most powerful and the most quick impact out of any of the teachings or practices that I did. You know, there's an immediacy to practicing, you know, relating to experience with ease and with kindness and with friendliness. There are a lot of words here, and we'll get into it later, what this means. I was at Kroger today. I walked to Kroger from my house. And I was with my dog, and my wife went in to shop, and I was sitting in the smoking section, which is very familiar with, to me, <laughs> even though I don't smoke anymore. <laughs> it's like, those are my people. <laughs> and so I was sitting down, and all these Kroger employees started coming out, and I was just chilling with my dog. I have a pit bull, and, you know, he's a handsome dog, I think. And so, you know, a lot of the employees at Kroger just started kind of talking. And they were on their break, and you know, I was kind of in their space. And I noticed that there was like an opportunity to connect if I wanted it. 
You know, it's like really that simple. And Bubba was talking about this earlier. Like, it really is that simple. And we're back at the grocery store here. <laughs> Maybe we should just all go to Kroger. <laughs> but uh, I noticed an opportunity. I, I, I was sitting around these people. They were on their break. They were asking me about my dog. There's an opportunity if I wanted it to connect. And I took it today, you know, and I asked them questions about their job and we laughed about, you know, some of their other employees and we people watched and I was there for about 30 or 40 minutes. And so there's some type of immediacy to the practice mindfulness, metta, loving-kindness practice. There's some type of like very close benefit. And it's so simple it's easy to overlook and I think that's part of the problem. The Buddha says one of the reasons why we suffer is because of ignorance and we don't want to take this as a uh, like conceptual ignorance or intellectual ignorance. But more in the term, terms of what the word actually means which is ignorance. We tend to ignore opportunities to, you know, connect. And not because we want to, but because we forget, because we get in a rush. You know, because I don't want to be bothered, because my body hurts, or because I'm, you know, too hungry, or too, uh, these aren't my people, or, you know, I have nothing in common with whatever, because the mind forgets. And kindness is a practice. It's not a belief. The Buddha actually calls it metta bhavana, which means the cultivation of kindness. Ajahn Sumedho, one of my favorite Buddhist teachers, says that the Buddhist path is not to follow the heart, like we learn in the West, but to train the heart. And we sometimes have this myth of authenticity. Well, I don't feel kind. That, that doesn't feel authentic to me, to be kind. You know, but we have it backwards. You feel kindness when you practice it. Right? The emotion of you know, connection and ease comes after the intention, not the other way around. And the Buddha described the practice of his dharma, the middle path, as a path of excavation. He actually gives this kind of metaphor. He said it's like these explorers are lost in the jungle and they stumble upon an ancient ruin, kind of like you might see at Angkor Wat. You know, and there's this, uh, all of this work to do to uncover this old city. And you've got to go in and you've got to like dig through the earth. You've got to uncover this city that's already there, right? But it's just been covered up. And sometimes you need the big equipment. Sometimes you've got to do a lot of digging. You've got to get the backhoe in there and, you know, 20 folks to come and just, you know, help you out. And sometimes you, it's a really delicate process, right? You get down to some of these artifacts, you've got to really be gentle and careful with the excavating. Deep down, each one of us wants to be safe, we want to be happy, we want well-being in our lives, all of us. You know, even a spider, if you go to kill a spider, what does it do? Scrunches up, 
runs away. It has a sense that it has a life. And we want to live. But we're born into a world that is vulnerable. That's what the Buddha is saying. The first noble truth. That life has this thread of vulnerability to it. The Latin etymology for the word vulnerability is vulnere, which means susceptibility to woundedness. And that we all want safety, but we're all susceptible to woundedness. You know, herein lies the, the actual aim of all of the Buddha's teaching. So what do you do in this vulnerable life, in this fragile experience of separation, of you know, illness, of loss, of not getting what one wants, of getting what we don't want sometimes? You know, what do we do in this existence that's really largely beyond our control, that we can influence and that we have agency over, which we should practice? And well, what do we do? It's this delicate process. We uncover what our heart's truest desire is, which, you know, we don't always express ourselves from that place because the fear is so covering the city or because the, uh, you know, hostility or the greed or the scarcity is so covering the city, it's hard to express ourselves from this place. There's a really great author. I think she actually writes like Hallmark cards. <laughs> I looked online to try to figure out, but she has all these awesome quotes. I just overheard this. She is really great, whether it's a Hallmark card or whatever. Her name's Emily McDowell, and she writes, finding yourself is not really how it works. You aren't a $10 bill in last winter's coat pocket. You're also not lost. You're right here, buried under cultural conditioning, other people's opinions, and inaccurate conclusions you drew as a kid that became your beliefs about who you are. Finding yourself is actually returning to yourself. It's an unlearning, an excavation, a remembering who you were before the world got its hands on you. I think that was a greeting card. <laughs> yeah, sure. Finding yourself is not really how it works. You aren't a $10 bill in last winter's coat pocket. You're also not lost. You're right here, buried under cultural conditioning, other people's opinions, and inaccurate conclusions you drew as a kid that became your beliefs about who you are. Finding yourself is actually returning to yourself, an unlearning, an excavation, a remembering who you were before the world got its hands on you. Say what? Emily McDowell. And this is precisely all of this hard work that we're doing, sitting with ourselves. You know, I've gone on countless meditation retreats where halfway I'm just like, what the hell am I even doing here? 
you know, there's this not this always this kind of linear progress like we're used to or that we're conditioned in our Western world. It's like, I do this, I get that. You know, mindfulness is about a relationship. And relationships take time, right? And they take patience and they take presence. And that's what metta is. Metta is kind of the culmination of these principles or qualities, patience, generosity, presence, kindness, ease, well-being. It's the practice of returning to our experience, the present experience, in a particular type of way. Do any of you all notice when your mind wanders during meditation that sometimes you have a bad attitude about that? <laughs> you know, it's the attitude. It's that attitude. It's not that the mind's wandering. It's how we relate to that. That's really where the practice is. It's, in, it's like how music is mostly made because of the notes in between or the silence in between the notes. <laughs> Without the silence, we wouldn't have the powerful dynamics. You know, we wouldn't have the, uh, you know, we, it wouldn't be something that we would want to listen to. It would just be noise. You know, a metta is like the, it's the moments in between experience, you know, where there's an opportunity to connect in a particular way, in a way that's curious, in a way that's patient, in a way that's generous, in a way that's kind. So I want to describe more traditionally what, you know, metta is from this 2,600-year-old teaching. Metta comes from the same etymology as this Pali Sanskrit word mitta or Sanskrit word mitra, which means friend. There's another term in Pali Sanskrit, uh, kalyana mitta, which means spiritual friendship. So mitta, mitta is a uh, friendliness. Sometimes it's defined as loving kindness. You know, but Again, the problem with language is that love is a very hard word. And there are many different kind of uses for the word love. So I, I actually kind of like the original etymology, this kind of kindness. And the, the Buddha taught metta as a boundless quality. So it's an unconditional kindness. In one sense, it's a worldview that the Buddha is encouraging us to take on, not as a dogma, not as a belief, although I probably couldn't find many people that wouldn't get behind the belief of kindness, but not as a belief, but as a reflection, as a, as a lens, almost like we're wearing glasses, a way to see the world. As a worldview, metta is a wish for all beings to be at ease. It is an unconditional wish that's rooted in non-harming and an aspiration to focus the aim of one's practice for the goodwill and benefit of all beings. You know, sometimes I hear from people, which I never understood really, but I guess I kind of get it, is you know, meditation is a selfish practice. You're sitting quietly you know, in a room with other people. You're not connecting or talking or doing anything. It's like as we get to know our own neurotic, habitual, reactive minds and learn how to bring some kind awareness 
internally into our own minds, the relationship to our own mind spills into our relationship with others. There's actually some psychology that, you know, psychological theory that has some basis in research that talks about how our internal working model, meaning how we think, is structured through our earliest relationships. You know, the work I've talked about a few weeks ago, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth in attachment theory and how we attach to our caregivers. You know, they call this object relations theory that, you know, every moment your attention's always somewhere. We know this in neuroscience. Fascinatingly, the Buddha also knew this. He called attention a universal mental factor, which means that in every mind moment, every moment, your attention's always present. We don't always know where it is, but it's always somewhere. And every object that we pay attention to, there's a way of relating to it. If the mind perceives it as pleasant, we like it. It can stay. Probably want a little bit more of it. Might hold on to it. If the object we're perceiving is neutral, we'll probably not even know or be conscious that our attention's on the object for very long. If the object that we pay attention to is unpleasant, we're going to want it to go away. We're going to resist. We're going to fight, react. And so mindfulness is not just about what it is that we're noticing in the moment. It's about how we're relating to the experience. Without attention, training our attention, we're unaware. There's no clarity, right? The mind is on autopilot. They actually call this in neuroscience the default mode network, that when your mind, you know, isn't tended to, it tends to drive itself. So part of mindfulness is training attention in not a controlled way, but a gentle way. They're just noticing, oh, what is, what is it like now? Oh, there's this feeling, or there's this sound out there, there's this you know, thought about work next week. <coughs> then how is that? How is that thought? Well, I notice that thought actually has a little bit of contraction in my stomach. When, when my mind goes to work this week, I notice my body <laughs> reacts. Without analyzing, that's the hard part, it's just kind of lingering and noticing in the moment, letting the experience reveal itself to the awareness. So that's part of his training attention, but there's also this other more subtle kind of quality of metta that we're developing, which is training intention. How do we relate to the object? So it's an object. It's a, you know, a sound of a baby crying on an airplane, right? What does the mind do? It says, God, can't these people just wait till their kid's a little bit older? Couldn't they just driven, right? And whatever story the mind wants to tell, it's a reaction to the sound. It's just sound. There's this really great Thai forest master, a guy named Ajahn Chah, that you know, used to tell his monks, they come and if you go over to Thailand, I went over to Burma a year ago and, you know, these folks party on the weekends. 
Right? So you've got a monastery. It's a Buddhist country. But you've got, you know, folks just like us want to go around and party on the weekend. Music's raging. And uh, they built this monastery right next to the city. And one of the monks came up to Ajahn Chah and said, man, I can't, <laughs> I can't even meditate. This is insane. You think we're going to cultivate any type of serenity or ease if the sounds like this? And he said, the sounds just sound. Stop going out and bothering the sound. <laughs> He's like, why you got to go out and bother the sound, right? It's this relationship. It's so subtle how the mind, its reactions are automatic, not our fault. But how do we relate, right? It's in those moments, like I said earlier, it's the space between the stimulus and our reaction to it that we notice the impact. And we get an opportunity to say, oh, may I be at ease with this sound? Not may this be easy so it goes away, so it doesn't bother me, so now I'm just like blissed out and totally enlightened. Because <laughs> that's just more aversion, right? And sometimes we notice that in our practice too. It's like, well, if I just remember the thing or do the thing right, then I won't feel any pain. Then I won't experience any irritation. No, may I be at ease with the irritated mind? Like I said during the meditation, like it's a little kid that's just saying, you know, throwing a tantrum. And you're able to look at the mind and say, oh, that's okay, mind. You know, you can throw your tantrum, but it's okay. There's no right or wrong way to be. That's right. Well, what about dark, dark thoughts? Like, I don't know. Like, things, what's it like? Oh, the murderer is here. Um, <laughs> just, uh, I know, you guys are not judging. Um, but, or maybe you are. Um, but, you know, I'm talking about, like, think, things that surprise me can come to my brain. Like, um, well, what am I going to get out of it? You know, or selfish. There's like this selfish part of me that's, sure. that shows up. And I'm like, so just like a little kid, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily just keep letting the kid throw the tantrum, right? But it's in the approach. So metta is about cooperation. It's not about, uh, you know, passively... Uh, lingering in the thought. It's not about, oh, you know, I'm going to just keep focusing on the sound all night and just sit here with the sound and the sound. I mean, that's one way to practice with really getting to know aversion, but it's about cooperating. So it's about saying, okay, the sound's here and what else is here too? Oh, my hands are here too. Okay. This feeling of my breath and my stomach, that's also here. All right, great. You know, there's also this inner quality of mind, this uh, metta that I can develop that's here too. May I be at ease? May I be at ease with the sound? Okay. You know, I can smile at the sound. You know, so it's about cooperating with the experience. It's not about, you know, just submitting. But it's about kind of, kind of, you know, first you've got to linger in it a little bit. You gotta feel into it. You gotta kinda notice it and say, oh, this is what this is. I notice this. But if it's something that's really overwhelming, we have to gently tell the mind like we would a little kid, not right now. Not right now. Yeah. Good question. 
So we'll get to some more questions in a moment or opportunity for some uh, discussion as well. I just want to go over you know, that mindfulness is a view. So it's, it's this intention of all of this work that we're doing. Like I said earlier, it's a worldview that we wish for all beings to be at ease. And the Buddha sets a high bar. I mean, I read this Metta Sutta, and he says, the seen, the unseen, the born, the unborn, in all directions, living on the land and the water, in every shape and size, and the whole, you know, all beings. And the balancing factor of metta is, is this wisdom factor. They call this equanimity, which is the understanding that we can't, right, that we can't, we can influence, we can support people in ease, but we can't do the work for them. So that's very important. Metta is not this kind of, uh, let's just be kind to everyone, and kindness looks one way type of practice. It's let's be kind to everyone and kindness looks a lot of different ways. So you gotta really be interested. Right? And you gotta really notice our tendencies to fall into the near enemy of metta, which is attachment, which is this kind of fixing or inauthentic kind of like people pleasing type of kindness, which is actually manipulation which actually is not very kind. <laughs> you know, it's I don't want to feel the feelings of uh, dissent or I don't want to feel the feelings of conflict, so I avoid it with, you know, smoothing it over. Or the other, which is the people-pleasing I was talking about, is like, I don't want you to feel your own aversion and conflict, so I'm going to take care of it for you. So equanimity is summarized by this phrase. May you be at ease. May you be at peace. May you be safe and protected from harm. May you be free from suffering in this world. And may I understand that your happiness is dependent upon your actions and not my wishes. So I still wish. That's the thing is I still wish. And it's important to wish. And to understand that our scope of influence is limited. It takes some humility. You know, say, I can't, you know, do it all. So there's this view of metta, but there's also this kind of relational attitude, which I was talking about earlier. Like learning how to bring this easeful, soft, gentle, kind way of you know, resting into an experience. And yeah, I mean, it sounds like, all right, cool, I want that. That sounds great. <laughs> but that's something that we've got to really practice is this more refined level of what I was talking about earlier is this object relationship. That what I'm experiencing in the moment, how, can I bring a quality of kindness to that experience? And then the third, you know, kind of way that metta may manifest is in, as an emotion. You know, it's a, an emo emotion of joy. And not maybe confused with the kind of attachment type of excitement, right? But metta is kind of this 
feeling that we feel connected. You know, that like when I, when you look in someone's eyes, when I was with this Kroger employee today and I looked her in the eyes and I laughed at one of her jokes and I saw her laugh and there was just this like very brief moment where we were in this feeling of metta. You, know, you can notice it if, if it's, it's available, you know. It's, we see it, kids playing on the playground, you know, their kind of innocence and And you may think even about someone, because we're going to practice here in a moment, someone in your life that brings you this kind of lightness. And they don't have to be perfect, because it's important to watch out for this, like, well, I don't have anyone. <laughs> you know, pets, animals. Yeah. So you're saying about you know, how you kind of lock eyes with that program uh-huh. side, right? I find it really interesting. Like, the exact moment that you're talking about when you kind of kind of lock eyes and you kind of have that feeling, right? It's almost like, you know how like every day we're all out going doing our own stuff and we're busy and like Mm -hmm. you don't really have time to talk to people and it's like we have chaos in our lives and we have all this going on. It's just like, it's almost like having those connections with people, it's almost for like one second, it's just like you're looking into someone's eyes and you're kind of looking into their soul and you're like sharing experience. Mm -hmm. And you're like, you can look past all the other stuff just for that microsecond. That's right. Something more real than it even the world around you. That's right. It's just so interesting. And we want to feel into that moment, right? And we want to get to know it and say, oh, that felt good. You know, or sometimes metta practice is what they call a purification practice. So sometimes when you start practicing, you get the opposite. So I said earlier, I was interested in the Buddha's teaching mostly through this kind of wisdom aspect. And I would hear some of my teachers be so heartfelt and so vulnerable. I mean, these are like some of the best speakers I've ever been around and just very like putting their heart out in the room. And I remember just feeling like, you know, there's no way. Like that's not in me. I'm built, I'm made different. You know, and so what, what happened is when I actually experienced a moment where there was like this kindness and vulnerability in the room, I felt the opposite. I felt that I was just right outside of it. Everyone else was included in it except for me. You know, and so it's okay to have that experience because then what you get to see is you get to see with wisdom, you get to see the separateness that the mind creates for itself. Right? The prison of the mind and this kind of, that's where my misery came from. Was in that belief somewhere in here that this program, it's not even a belief. If it was a belief, I'd just say, okay, I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> it's a program that the mind runs that says, everyone's included except for you. And so, you know, what I got to see is I get to work with that. I was so thankful that I got the opportunity to feel in that moment where I thought I should be feeling metta. I felt the opposite. And so you may notice, you know, we're going to do some practice here in a little bit, that metta is a concentration practice, so it takes repetition. It takes, you know, you've got to, like, learn the practice, and sometimes it starts as a dry practice, which is you're just usually repeating phrases, very simple phrases, like, may I be at ease. May I be at peace. 
may I be kind, may I be gentle with this experience, may I be at ease, may I be at peace. Very simple. You can use any words that you want, but it's got to be in the spirit of kind, friendly. You know, so in the beginning, you're just kind of learning. So part of metta is this, they call it, one of the applications of it is you know, concentration practice. You're trying to, just like during mindfulness when the mind wanders, or just like during the practice we did this uh, earlier this evening, when the mind wanders, you notice it and you bring it back to your anchor. Here the phrases are the anchor. So sometimes it's just dry practice, just trying to remember that you're practicing. And the second application, like I just said, is purification, which means sometimes you're practicing, may I be at ease, and the mind just will show you its rebellion towards that. It'll say, I, I can't believe I came all the way fucking out here on a Sunday night to do this hippie shit with all these people. I'm never coming back here again. This guy's just telling me to love myself. I could have just listened to Oprah and... <laughs> You know, but it's, again, it's, that's the mind showing you something. It's like, oh, how sad, mind, that you, you know, struggle with that. And sometimes I'll even switch to a little bit of compassion practice. If my mind's really resisting, I'll just say, I care about you. I forgive you. I care about you. And then the third uh, application of the practice is cultivation. Because over time... You know, the hope is, my experience has been that you do cultivate the feeling of metta. You know, not all the time. Different things happen on different days, but by and large, when I sit down and I do a metta practice, it doesn't take me too long to start to really connect with that feeling. I have an inner resource because I've done thousands of hours of practice, you know, and practice and practice. And now when I say, may I be at ease, that word has significance for me. In the beginning, it didn't. It was just a word. May I be at ease. But words take meaning through experience. So I experience, may I be at ease. 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 What's that like? Curious mind. What's that like? May I be at ease. And then, you know, you start to kind of generate that feeling. It's like, oh, it feels like this. Sometimes you start in the practice by bringing a benefactor to mind. Like I said earlier, a pet, a good friend, a teacher, you know, someone that's been with you on a spiritual journey or something like that. Don't have to be perfect. The purification part of the practice may be you bring them up and you're like, no, actually, I'm pissed at them right now. <laughs> right? Look at the easeful side of them. Put that aside for a second. If they're a good enough person, put that... 10% of the time aside, look at the 90%. <laughs> I like to say, this is someone or some being, if they were to walk in the room right now and you were just alone in here and they were to sit down in front of you, you would feel a lightness around them. You feel comfortable being yourself. It's encouraged to pick someone that's currently living because you're not doing a compassion practice, which is another practice. You're trying to generate this quality of lightness and grief is okay to work with in a compassion practice, but different practices. Picking someone that's living, someone that if they were to walk in the room. So what we're going to do tonight, just for 10 minutes, is we're going to meditate and practice with what they call the benefactor. So you just kind of visualize this person. I'm not a very great visual thinker, so I just try to get an essence. What I'll do actually is I'll try to remember a time I was around them. 
and their sense of humor or something about them that I like. And then I'll try to kind of feel connected to that part of them. So bring them to mind. You'll sit. You'll kind of imagine them in front of you or their essence. And then you'll offer them some phrases of metta first. May you be at ease. May you be at peace. May you be kind and gentle with yourself. With yourself. And then we'll let them you know, leave the room, metaphorically speaking. And we'll turn the attention on ourselves and we'll practice with ourselves. Just find a way to sit that feels comfortable. 